Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. And I hope you guys have enjoyed Financial Literacy Month. As we just wrapped that up, we had a great time with that. I think there were some incredible stories that were shared through Financial Literacy Month. And I hope that you guys receive value in that. But today, we are going to jump right in. Today, we're joined by Patience Mary Me Ball. And she's going to come talk to us about investing in women today. I'm really excited about this. She reached out to us and some of the things that she's doing where she's working at now are absolutely incredible. And without further ado, Patience, welcome to the show. Thank you, Emlyn, for having me and hello to everyone out there. Awesome. So Patience, for those of the listeners that don't know who you are, please give us a little background about Patience. So I'm going to start all the way from the beginning. So I was born in Zimbabwe. And for those who don't know where Zimbabwe is, it's in Southern Africa. I moved to the US over 30 years ago through Europe. I have lived on three continents and worked and done business on all continents of the world. And so I have the joy of moving through the world as a Zimbabwean by birth, an African-American by naturalization, and a global citizen through the work that I've been doing. I love that. I love that. I love that. Especially like we're looking at the pandemic we've seen. It's a global pandemic. And if anything, the pandemic has shown us is that we are all global citizens. We are all in this together, right? And so to hear you say that from the outset, I actually really, that really resonated with me. Coming from Zimbabwe, I have to ask about it because it's from the motherland. I got to ask. So talk to us about a little bit about that. I know you said you moved from a while back, but do you go back and visit? Absolutely. So it's still a part of my life. My mother lives there along with one of my sisters. We visit often. My kids do charity work there. We're involved with an orphanage there. If I could ship my son there for dinner every day, he would much rather be eating with my family rather than eating at my dinner table. Their cooking is so much better than mine. So absolutely, there's a big connection with Zimbabwe. And part of my story you know, starts with my grandfather, who was a policeman and had three daughters and three sons and educated his daughters equal to his boy children. And that same grandfather would say to me when I was a kid, you know, you should have been born first. You're born to be a leader. And that was always a big inspiration for me. And I carry that. And in the work that I do, I've done many things. And maybe I can just go back to another story in Africa, which is the genesis of the work that I do today. This is not in Zimbabwe, but in South Africa, in KwaZulu-Natal. I left Zimbabwe as a teenager and went to school in Europe for a little bit and then came and finished my undergraduate degree here in Ohio, actually, in Springfield, Ohio. Then went on to law school at Northwestern Law School. And in the first year of my law school studies, at the end of that, I interned at a legal clinic in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. I was providing legal services to people who didn't have access to legal services. And I realized, you know, I was sitting there telling them about how they had a right to shelter and a right to food and all kinds of different rights. And then at the end of the six weeks that I was spending there, 
I start to really think and realize that I was telling them something that they really couldn't access without economic capacity, without jobs. I was going to be a human rights lawyer, but it made me stop to realize that economic capacity was in most places and in most cases the avenue to accessing those rights. So I was fortunate enough that the second part of my summer, I did it at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. I had divided my summer between working at the grassroots and then working at the enforcement level of international law. And I was working for a gentleman who was who worked for one of the judges at The Hague. And I realized that even then, the global legal order is also informed by economic capacity. Countries that are richer don't find themselves facing the judges at the ICJ and countries that are poorer do. And so that summer was incredibly transformational for me. Christmas time that same year, I decided to take the GMAT and apply to business school as well. I ended up doing a JD Northwestern Law School at the Prisca Law School and MBA at Kellogg University, the business school at Northwestern. Graduating, knowing that the work I wanted to do was at the intersection of justice, human rights, and economic capacity. Now, I was lucky. I got this incredible job working at the International Finance Corporation right after that, where I was able to do both. I was investing in a way that provided both IRR, internal rate of return, but also ERR, the economic rate of return, looking at how the investments we're doing would provide jobs, would make economies run better, and a whole range of other things. That is my genesis story that includes not just Zimbabwe, but also South Africa. Yeah, I like that. I like that. You have a really strong why, right? So you went in there and then your why started to unfold right before you. This is what you started at wanting to do. And now you're seeing that the economic impact is really where you can make the biggest change, right? That's where the capacity for economic impact is being shown to you on a macro level and a micro level, right? That's awesome that you recognize that. Talk to me a little bit about investing in women. That's going to be, where did that passion come from? Because it seems like we're along the road, right? Listening to what you're saying, but it seems like there's more to it. Yeah. Working at the IFC, the first part of my career was investing in power generation assets. Very few women there. In most rooms, I was likely to be the only woman. And certainly the power plants, I was likely to be the one of very few women, if not the only one. I moved on to invest in distressed assets, non-performing assets, and both IFC's non-performing assets, but also the non-performing assets of other entities where we're acquiring the assets and reworking them. And then the final part of my time at the IFC was in financial markets. While I was investing in financial institutions around the world, as well as into venture funds and private equity funds. This is the time when I was in financial markets when the 2008 subprime crisis happened. Christine Lagarde was at the time the head of the IMF said if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, things would have been different. For me, I started interrogating, okay, so maybe it, it didn't need to be Lehman Sisters, but what if it had been Lehman Brothers and Sisters? What might have been different? And so I started interrogating that and looking at what was happening through the, the crisis and noting that this is the first time that this idea of women leadership actually then entered my lens and onto my radar screen, that companies that had gender diverse leadership at the board level and at the C-suite were actually coming out of the crisis better, 
were managing through the crisis, coming out of the crisis quicker. They were managing through the crisis better in the sense that their earnings remained stable. Their stock prices, they were more stable than their peers. And then I realized that there was something to it. Realization, I looked at the IFC's own investments, which at any given time, the investment book is about $45 billion, and looked at how much of that was exposure to anything gender-related. Where we're using a view of women as well as everybody else in all these markets we were investing in. And beyond the microfinance book, which was about $3 billion at the time, there weren't very many women in our investment book. And that's when I decided that I was going to build IFC and develop IFC's Banking on Women program. And the Banking on Women program was named after the idea of counting on women, the idea that we can count on women. I don't want to use the word bet on women, but we can count on women and we can also provide access to capital for women entrepreneurs. And so the Banking on Women business went on to is now a multi-billion dollar business for the IFC. We issued the first ever gender bonds on the Yuri Dashi market and structured the first ever global debt fund with Goldman Sachs for $600 million. It's now also deployed multi-billion dollars, almost $3 billion into women entrepreneurs around the world. This was the genesis of my focus on women and realizing that we could be intentional about directing capital towards these change makers, these leaders. Women in underrepresented groups don't lack the will to change, right? That's what you say. They lack the financial power to do so. So talk to us about that. Anyone who has a mother, and every single one of us does have a mother, or siblings or a daughter, female siblings or a daughter, recognizes that they are incredibly smart. They have they show exemplary leadership any day and every day. And if we're to go into specific data about what women actually provide for companies, for for economies, you would recognize that it's not that they don't have the potential, they don't have the will, they don't have the innovations. In most instances, they're actually the closest to the challenges that we're trying to solve, that the world is trying to solve. So their innovations and their thinking around how to change and how to push back on those challenges are actually much more powerful than most. Yet what stands between us and solving those problems happens to be how the world views providing capital to them or investing in and through them to solve those problems. I'm hearing you say that, and I'm thinking about even here in the States women weren't allowed to own their own credit cards till sometimes in the 70s here in the States. So women being able to get capital has been a problem for a long time. Like if we think about it on the retail level that they wouldn't even allow women in the United States, which is the most progressive nation, one of the most progressive nations. And if you think about that, if you really just let that set in, especially with what you're saying as your mission, if women couldn't get credit cards, where were they going to get the capital to start a business? Where were they going to get the capital to do some of the wonderful things that been able to do when they got money. Yeah, you said it, women and other underrepresented groups, like there's a lot of underrepresented groups out there that just need capital. I posted something on Twitter today. 
I said underrepresented advisors aren't looking for a handout. We're looking for opportunities. All we need is an opportunity and we will show you what we can do. And I think that is the same thing that women are saying. Not just you get the money and then nothing happens. There's tons of women out there, entrepreneurs that are doing incredible jobs and making major impact. And I can interrupt you here and give you some data. For instance, 25 of the most gender diverse companies earned a median return of 72% higher than their counterparts in a report that was published in 2015 by McKinsey. And talking about investments and investment committees, we know that gender diverse investment committees outperform all male committees in terms of alpha and IRR by a whole bunch, you know, 7% and 12% respectively. And this is out of a report done by the Paris Business School in 2019. I mean, I could go on. If women were able to just participate identically to men in economies, in just the regular jobs that make economies run, there would be a 26% annual GDP growth by 2025. There are similar numbers for people of color as well. This is the data that used to inspire me, right? I used to focus on, so what is it that women are doing? But now I'm much more inspired by the visual of what women are doing. But we're to go back to your point about how women do not lack the willpower. That realization that women are not lacking in willpower, are not lacking in potential, are not lacking in talent. Can I just say this? Women aren't lesser than men, period. And everything that you just said was an attempt at men. They're this. And it's just a man trying to attempt to make a woman feel like less. Exactly, right? In a world where we're living through challenges that are coming at us at an accelerated rate and at a bigger, at scopes that are much larger, the idea that we're going to push back on all of these problems with one hand behind our back, which is the female capacity behind our back, just boggles the mind because, let's face it, if people stop and think about who in their household or who in their relationship is likely to be more long-term in their thinking and is likely to think in a much more sustainable way, most men, if they're honest, would say, it is my wife who thinks a bit more sees around the corners and risk mitigates for the family and provides that view that ends up with all of the family and in most instances, all of the community actually being better off. Men, our patriarchal society chooses not to see that. I think it's dangerous, actually. On the one hand, it's sad, but on the other hand, it's dangerous because we are going to be experiencing even greater challenges. We just went through 2020 with climate and the pandemic and wars mostly started by men uh, raging around the world. And we think that we can keep trying to solve those problems the same way. In other words, through the potential of a few and not the full potential of everybody. And that just does not make sense. And so at Women of the World Endowment, our theory of change and our thesis is that we have to look at investing in, for, and through women 
in order to push back on all of these problems. We need to invest in them as change makers who are building incredible solutions to push back on those challenges, be they environmental challenges, social challenges, racial justice challenges. Women are at the forefront and leading in exemplary ways. That's what the organization does, right? They help focus on that and help women with that. What are some of the ways that they're doing that? Yeah. So at Women of the World Endowment, our thesis is that, you know, we're going to change the world through investing, through centralizing investing in women to solve today's most pressing problems. We're doing that across the capital spectrum. So we are thesis focused, but we are asset class agnostic, we're vehicle agnostic, we're investment instrument agnostic. And so that means we're investing all the way from early stage investing in venture funds to public equities. But we are structured as a C3 in that in order to build this institutional pool of capital that we intend to build to meet the challenge of the ambition that we've got, which is centralizing investing in women, we are raising the corpus of our endowment from donations, and then we're taking that capital, which would be an evergreen pool of capital, and the ambition is actually raising a $5 billion pool of capital over the next 10 years, which is an evergreen pool of capital. We're investing it so that every dollar is interrogated for both risk-adjusted returns that are comparable to any other market strategy, but as well as delivering deep impact for women and girls and the communities that they are empowering every single day. I don't think that women need empowering. Women are empowering communities every single day. So our capital is invested across the capital spectrum to allow them to do that. We invest in, for, and through women. The second layer of our impact that we're driving for is that as we do this, we actually bring others along. We structure the strategies that we want to invest in and sometimes co-develop products with other market players, and then we co-invest with them. So every dollar gets multiplied by bringing others along. And then finally, the income that we generate from that is then on-granted organizations focused on women and focused on making sure that women become central to problem solving. So is this virtuous circle of capital, which is also a virtuous circle of impact? We have impact going right through, and it's an evergreen pool of capital. I started the endowment partly because I got frustrated. The idea that we were trying to change institutional pools of capital from outside the room, trying to ask them to please don't think of women as just microfinance and cookstoves. Please think about women as solution builders across the capital spectrum. So we decided, well, we'll build one. And then we have a seat at the table inside those rooms. Then we'll start influencing them and sharing them our own strategies and inviting them to invest alongside us. That essentially is the strategy as well as the infrastructure of how we do our work. Like, I love it. Why do people need to stop thinking of investing in women and other underrepresented? But we'll just say women for right now. Why do they need to stop? in thinking of investing in women as something separate, like as, as another category, like this is an initiative that we need to have. We have our regular initiative, but we need this one in addition just to do this, just to check the box, if you will, because that's almost what it feels like. Yeah, that's like saying we need to solve the world's problems through only this bucket of capital or through only these strategies. The reality of it is that women and other groups, other minorities, any capitalized 
community. We're not a category. My belief is that whatever instrument, vehicle, whatever strategy it is, if investors would stop and think about the fact that everyone has talent, everyone has, if they were given the capital and are able to live out their potential, would deliver incredible things for this world. You wouldn't do that via a separately carved out little pool of capital over here. The worst thing, Emlem, is that I see that those carve outs are usually philanthropic capital. So it's a thing that I do over here with philanthropy. And so, in other words, if I don't see investing in certain types of people is actually investing in problem solving or in market growth or in any of the other things that they think about when they think about white males, for instance, if I think about everybody else as philanthropy or as investing in beneficiaries, these victims and people down here, there's a big opportunity that's being missed. But as I said, I try to think about this more in terms of the fact that it's actually dangerous for the world because we will not be able to solve the problems that are coming at us if we keep thinking that the solutions reside within the minds and the capacity of only a given few. And then we are also not including people with lived journeys who are closest to those problems in coming up with the solutions and investing and financing the solutions. You have the majority of the $70 trillion of capital that's out there, 97% of it being managed by a group of people who have very specific lived journeys. And those lived journeys are not informative of the solutions that might actually work at the community level. At some point, we have to realize that it's not working because it hasn't worked. That's why we are in trouble that we're in and we need to do things differently. To your point, it's not a niche strategy. It's not an all-by-the-way strategy. It's not a cover strategy. It's not a beneficiary victim strategy. It really has to be an all-of-the-capital potential strategy. And I think that goes back to the whole thing that we said before, right? Underrepresented people aren't looking for handouts. Women are saying, oh, we just if we only had this money, it's like, give me the money. Let me show you. Give me the money and move out of the way. Let me show you what I can do. And I think that that needs to happen more. I, I think about funding for people that were in the financial advisor space. Like there's no funding for that. Like we just got to get out here and hopefully you've saved enough money. My question to you would be, what would be the first step? I think it's actually very simple. I get that all the time. It's as simple as changing the identity or improving or diversifying the identity of people who are allocating capital. Capital will continue going to the same destinations if we do not change the composition of the people in those investment rooms, making those decisions. I would tell my friends when I was investing for my own account, I used to invest in gender diverse teams for my own account, and some of the potential investments would come into the room and I would be the only person who would understand why that investment strategy actually is incredible and would work and would address so many, would have an addressable market that would likely result in a unicorn being born, right? But that was partly because I was the only person who looked and smelled the way I do in the room. And if we don't have those people in the rooms, people are gonna keep investing into the things that they know, the things that are informed by their lives. 
it really doesn't make sense. So one, changing the diversity of the people in the investment rooms. Two, is for people to stop and actually stop asking for data and just open their eyes. For me, the latest thing, when somebody asks me for data, maybe pre-2020, I would actually struggle. I mean, I would find the data. There's plenty of data. There's no struggle. There's there are all kinds of reports that have been produced that indicate all the wonderful things about the risk mitigation, so downside risk protection and potential upside that you get from investing with diverse teams, et cetera, et cetera. But 2020 especially has given us a visual. And this is a visual that has been across the globe, right? Everyone has been impacted by the pandemic, right? We've all seen the same thing. And here's the visual that I have that I now walk into a room with. And with this visual, if somebody, after I'm done giving them this spiel, if they still ask for data, then it's time for me to leave the room because the conversation is just not going to go anywhere. But indulge me a little bit as I go through this visual with you. The non-physical wall that stood between the world and more deaths due to COVID was majority female, right? More than 70%, about 77% of healthcare workers are female. And we relied on them to hold that wall between us and more debts. That's one. Two, you look at now we're coming out of the pandemic and we are asking teachers to go back to work. And 66% of teaching staff, the average globally, it's female. And those are the people we're asking to be on the front lines of taking our children back so the economies can begin to chuggle again. And then you look at the fact that the scientists who created, who developed the, the jabs that we all now, the vaccines that we're not all now taking in our arms so that we can go back out there. Look at Dr. Kizmekia Kobe, the scientist at NIH, who is an African-American scientist. She was part of the Moderna vaccine. Her role in that lab was more than that, right? It gave people of color the comfort that I can have that jab in my arm and I will be okay because there's enough reason why Black people would not have trusted the jab. People start thinking about the fact that the role of people who don't look like them in a room actually pays dividends beyond the capital return. People would start doing things differently, right? And then you go to the racial justice, I can context, I can't even say, call it a moment because it's been going on for a very long time, but the 2020 context is particularly challenging and we're living, we just are living again. But if you look at that and you think about Alicia Gaza, Patrice Cullors and Opal Tometi, these three women who created Black Lives Matter and gave us a tent, the whole world, a tent where we could express our frustration and our anger and our hope right? And other people could take on this saying without feeling threatened. For the first time, we have a racial justice movement that is so much, that is a diverse population of everybody. And that is because this tent that was created by these three women is one that is comfortable. It's non-threatening, yet it provides a home for us to be hopeful, to be angry, to be frustrated, to be all of those things, right? The way that women have been exemplary, Stacey Abrams in Atlanta 
and the work that she did over the years to end up with the kind of results that happened in Atlanta, climate change. Some of my own personal friends, Rachel Rogashioti, whom I, I'm sure you know, if you don't know Rachel, you should definitely know Rachel or Bayer Robinson. Rachel Robashioti. Rachel Robashioti. Yes, she was on the show. Ah, there you go. Shout out to Rachel and what they're doing over at Edicina Wealth. Yeah, and Bayer Robinson, whom you should also have on the show. I mean, these are women who are creating these ecosystems, capital to move into communities that are currently undercapitalized. And at the government level, the NIH just issued a report, I think it was last month, that indicated that governments led by women had an edge in managing the pandemic so much better than governments led by men. And that is across from New Zealand with Jacinda and Taiwan Ingwen in Taiwan to Merkel in Germany. Things are not going so well right now, but partly because the men are involved in the provinces and the men are causing there. They're thinking about how they want to do things differently in their own provinces. At the federal level, she had it right. And then women as caregivers, juggling, trying to do work and look after kids. This is the visual that we all should just be holding on to. And then that visual should inform us of the leadership capacity at all levels that women have. And we should not need data anymore, right? We should just know that this capacity has been confirmed for all to see. I'm thinking like there's more of the, it's just the way that things have always been. And it's not saying that they're right. And then men have always been in this position of power. And I think that people are scared to lose the power. Certain people that are in power are really, really scared to lose power. And this is evident. History tells us that there's plenty of historical examples of people that don't want to lose power, what they do right before they lose power. There's a lot of things being acted out. And then there's always retaliation. There's always different things. It's not only, there's so many different fights. Like it's one thing to say, okay, we're trying to get more women in the workforce, things like that. And that's one of the fights that we have to fight. But then now we get them in. Now you don't want to pay them the same. First, we don't want to get you in. Now you get in. Now we don't want to pay you the same. Now we got to fight to get the same pay, not because you're not as qualified, not because you don't have the same degree, just because you're a woman or because you're a woman of color or because you're not a part of the popular culture. So there's so many different things there. And I don't want it ever to seem like it's a, because there's plenty of men that are out there advocating for women. So I don't want it to feel like just a men versus women, because it's not a men versus women. It's men and women working together for the greater good of humanity, not just to advance one sex over the other. But I totally, totally feel you with what you're saying in regards to what needs to happen. Like we have to have it. And I think that as our country, I think we've spoken. I mean, Kamala Harris being our vice president speaks volumes of what the country has to say. I think it won't be long before we see a woman president. But with that, still, there's still tons of work to do. Like everything didn't change because Barack Obama became president. And actually, as soon as he got out, it went really, really bad, right? We regressed a ton. So what I would say is continue doing the work and doing all the stuff that you were doing. And I will continue to advocate for women with all that I have. I just don't know how we can stop. Like we can't stop. We can't be weary and well-doing. I think we've seen some progress and now we have to really kind of double down on what we need to do. As you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast where we're changing the complexion of wealth. And patients, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. What motivates you, inspires you to continue to learn and grow? 
Yeah, I have to say that it is the visual that I just described. It is the faith that my grandfather was now gone, had in me. Well, more than anything, it is knowing that if we don't grow as individuals, if we don't learn, if we don't think of doing things differently, if we do not open our eyes to opportunity that is not as clearly visible to us, maybe because of geographic blinders or racial blinders or whatever it is, if we don't do that, I'm not sure that we will have a world to leave behind for our kids. I happen to have two sons, two black men. I'm hoping to leave a better world for, so I don't have a choice but to keep learning, to keep growing, and to keep trying to be a better human being and do better. How has your family supported you on this journey? We have family that's all in. Honestly, we have a family dashboard, and I would actually encourage everybody to do this. We have a family dashboard where we look at our investments. We look at our investments of capital, our investments of time, our investments of our minds, our spiritual investments, and every single person in my family is on that dashboard. So everyone knows that they have to put what they're doing, what's in their resume on that dashboard. So for instance, I'm lucky. I happen to have married a guy that I met in business school who who continues to be my friend today. And he runs his small company and we are equal partners. We do everything. We cook together. We manage, you know, the household together. We do everything together. Our sons are all in as well. So my husband and I, Whatever charities we donate to, our sons donate their time. They actually go in and do work. So to give you an example, I talked about an orphanage in Zimbabwe. We donate to the orphanage in Zimbabwe, and my son actually went and worked there for two summers ago, helping the young orphans there in reading, but also cleaning, cooking, doing whatever was needed to be done. The same thing with the Sasha Bruce organization here in DC for youth, you know, experiencing home troubles. My boys have gone and painted the walls, cleaned the floors, uh, set up their computer library. Everybody in my family is all in. My older son is one of the leaders of a black student racial justice chapter. And my younger son is Actually, I'm very proud of this. In 2020, after the passing, well, the killing of Mr. Floyd, you know, corporates came out with all kinds of pronouncements on what they were going to do differently, commitments they were making, and would have these conversations in my household that they could say that because nobody was going to hold them to account. It was a PR departments were doing all of the writing. My younger son started capturing all the statements and compiling them and doing research on them, he ended up getting a job with a young lady named Olivia Knight, who's doing the work of actually diversity, of scoring the Russell 1000 companies on diversity and inclusion. So my son, who at the time started this job at 16, is a researcher for that. And so he will have his mark on how these Russell 1000 companies will be judged by investors on they are living up to the commitments they made. And so everybody in my household is absolutely all in. I feel like we support each other. They're not just supporting me, we're all supporting each other with this work that we're doing collectively. Absolutely. And if you could offer one piece of advice to our listeners, what would that be? 
it'd be stand in your power. You are an everyday hero if you're intentional about leaving this place better than you found it. And specifically, I would say as a, for families, develop your own dashboard, figure out what it is that you are doing in your communities, but be intentional about interrogating where your money is going. It could very well be invested in private prison complex for all you know. Interrogate how your money is invested and then be intentional about with your time. Make time for family, your health, your faith, and also build your networks. Your networks are currency and they're really important. And currency, and I don't mean that currency in terms of dollars, it's currency in every single way. And so all of those things are things that I live by and I'll leave them with your, with your listeners. Awesome. If people want to get more information about you or want to follow you on social media, what social medias are you active on? Where can they get more of patients? They're not going to find me on Twitter. <laughs> Today I was up at 4 a.m. working because I am that busy. I would not have time to spend on all of those other things. So I'm on LinkedIn, so they can find me on LinkedIn, patients are in the ball on LinkedIn. And we post all kinds of blogs. I write all kinds of blogs and post them regularly. They can also find them on our website, wawendowment.org. So that's W-O-W-E-N-D-O-W-M-E-N-T.org. We'll put that in the show notes so you can just click the link. We'll make sure that that's in there for you. Patience, this has been a great conversation. It was absolutely incredible. And the work that you're doing, thank you for all that you do for women everywhere. Thank you for that. Thank you so much, Emlem. It's been fun having a conversation with you. Awesome. Awesome. As you all know, this is Minority Money Podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or a CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast, so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here and until next time.